0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to SHIFT, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host. An influx of new advanced driver assistance technology has reached public roads in recent years, and the pace of innovation and new product is accelerating. The latest announcement comes from Mercedes-Benz, which says it's going to be the first automaker to deploy a level three automated driving system on U.S. roads after self-certifying that system in Nevada. What does that mean? Not too many people know. Big picture, whether we're talking about a level two driver assistance system or level three automation, there's increased scrutiny of how drivers behave when they're using these systems, whether they're causing inattention, whether they enhance safety, and how humans and machines should best collaborate. Brian Reamer has expertise in perspective and data that informs some early answers to those questions. He's a research scientist in the MIT Age Lab and at the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. While there's federal efforts underway to understand how human drivers utilize these driver assistance features, Brian and his team have been collecting that sort of data for nearly eight years. Brian is my guest on the podcast today. Uh, Without any further preamble, let's get right to it. I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with MIT research scientist, Brian Reamer. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today.
1: Fantastic to be here, Pete.
0: You know, you and I have talked fairly often over the uh, years, and in preparation for, for our conversation today, I went back and looked at some of the stories I've written about your work, your perspective on the industry, and there's, there's one that stands out because it's timely. Back on July 21st, 2019, I wrote a story with the headline, Why Level 3 Automated Driving Technology Has Failed to Take Hold. And you said... And I quote, Level 3 pushes the boundaries on what you expect a human to do and makes it difficult to discern, am I driving or am I riding on a moment-to-moment basis? So fast forward to the present day, Brian, this is a bit of a long intro, but there are several automakers deploying Level 3 systems in the US this year, and one could argue it's about to take hold. So I'm curious, has anything changed with regard to how you view Level 3 automated driving technology? You know, it's
1: interesting you should ask that because, you know, Janko you wrote a piece this morning talking about the gray areas of Arizona law and the L3 deployments that Mercedes is trying to push there. And I think that, you know, what has changed the scope and context of what L3 is and, and, and might be has gotten narrower over time. And it's become even more salient today, and you see this in Europe a lot lately, that level two and level four are the future. Level four, way out there until we're going to see integrated features that really do move me as a rider, um, either in a RoboToxy that is widely deployed or in a feature in a car at some point, hopefully in the future. Level two, here today, balancing the aspects of convenience, hopefully appropriately with safety. But this mushy middle, um, is, is Brian Worker Smith you know, talked about several years ago of level three, is an engineer's dream in a lawyer's next yacht um, because the gray area in between, man, the legal system and, and at least in the US is gonna dive into this really deep and really hard. So you know, while we may be able to do this technologically, I do think that many of the manufacturers that are still pursuing level three are doing it to say they have designed and developed and deployed a feature. Whether they can ever make a profit on that feature Is something that I think a lot of them have written off. Um, So $10,000 of sensing that you sell for a thousand bucks at best, in a few thousand or a few tens of thousands premium vehicles that's rarely used, you know, have really moved the needle anywhere. No. So I think a lot of what what we once thought we can capture from L3 is really there in, in level two systems and perhaps level two systems that are, you know, more hands free in nature, such as Super Cruise.
0: Alright, let's stick with level 3 for a moment as uh I'm sure we'll dive into level 2, but if you're one of these automakers like Mercedes in Arizona or Nevada right now for for one example, if you're deploying these level 3 systems, what are the questions or concerns that that jump to mind for you? Um
1: misuse and abuse. I mean, I think that consumers use of technology rarely parallels that with the design team cohesively. Consumers do things that you don't expect because quite frankly, we're predictably irrational. We you know, do crazy things like text and drive or figure out how to get the phone out of view with the cameras and do all kinds of crazy things that are outside of what the designer's purview is. But on the other hand is why are we automating to free resources to do other things? so i think folks will you know who do experiment with these systems and i think they're going to be very small in production and, and your you know mercedes is delivering to a very specific cohort of consumers but folks who do you know begin to explore these features will explore them in ways well outside the, the purview of what the design team really envisioned and we see that in some of the data we're collecting at mit with other systems as well is that you know and sometimes yeah they are used within that ODD and design scope but in other cases we see people using technology well beyond the designer's view.
0: When you think of level three, and I guess we should kind of definitionally say a system where sometimes the the uh, human is driving and sometimes in which the car has taken responsibility for the driving away from the the human. Um, and then there's this, as you said, a kind of a mushy middle where there's this handoff from machine back to to the human in particular. Now, I'm curious if if there's um, a time limits that that'd be a best practice in terms of how long should a human have to to retake control and and regain situational awareness?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, Pete, and, I, and a question I don't think there's a clear answer to. But I think that one the difference between level three and level four is that in level three, the human's supposed to be there as a fallback ready user. Okay, so when the system does encounter something that they, you know, you know, the system designers didn't account for, hey, human, it's your problem now. And, and, and quite frankly, humans do require time to regain situational awareness, situational awareness. and, you know, that's, that's multiples of seconds, not fractions of seconds. Now We can go to a deep debate how many multiples of seconds. In the context of a level four transition, though, we're talking about something that becomes planned in nature that you, you you can begin to think about envisioning and designing a system where we are focused not on sudden transitions of the human will be responsible now, but planning for the transition when we're going to exceed the ODD in some way, shape or form. And the vehicle is really truly responsible for driving until there is a transition or a safe harbor sought. And I think that's the big you know, crux here is that we as humans are just not going to be there in a fraction of seconds. And that is where things have a tendency to go wrong. It's that last minute. The sensor fails. The roadway changes. Something unpredictable happens. You know, Mercedes is a great illustration of an organization that does incredible engineering. But the roads in Germany are far better than the roads in America potholes and six-foot craters and high technology just don't go together. So all of a sudden, you're you're dumping along, and all of a sudden, you hit this pothole, and all of a sudden, things don't work the way they should. I mean, I was driving the other day, and my BMW all of a sudden starts warning me that the active safety assistance and the forward collision warnings aren't working. Well, it was snowing and raining out, and all of a sudden, the sensors are blocked. All all of a sudden, it's telling me it doesn't work anymore. Well, what am I going to do? Pull over and start scraping the frost off the window? No.
0: With... This will be my last question for you on level three. Um, Without firm answers about that handoff in terms of what's the ODD that these can, you know, what's, what's predictable in terms of a handoff that's coming, how much time should, should be allotted for such a handoff without firm answers to that, do you think it's safe for automakers to deploy level three systems today? I
1: suspect it is. the question is not, is it safe or unsafe? Is it safe enough? And, 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 and the problem is, is that it's probably safer than we are in general, because they're being deployed in very limited ODDs where the automation is actually probably protecting us in most of the situations. The problem is, is this is not a black and white answer, which means the legal system is going to fight on, is it safe enough? And there is enough academic literature to say, hey, we are terrible overseers of highly automated systems, that the legal community is going to take hold of any major incidents here or set of incidents and have a field day. And as I said, look, you know, you can think about Pot on this topic area. Um, So, you know, as an OEM, just because we can engineer this, does it make sense to deploy it for the sake of technology? Or do we really need solutions that help enable humans to move more conveniently safer, more economically, more state sustainability. And we can think of oh, all a bunch of terms in here. But again, what are we achieving with level three? Not much of that that we can't do with level two, mitigating a lot of unknowns out there. And I think what's the scary part of the unknowns is, is that much like you know, we can think about autopilot in particular, um, you know, really setting the stage for level two with, with a system that you know, seems to be in the news way more frequently than we prefer to see, you know. Issues with level three vehicles will probably go the same way. Um, so we don't really want this stuff on headline news. We want this stuff being solved through engineering, good design, safety efficacy, and enhancing convenience at the same time.
0: I think level two is further along at the very least in all those areas. So maybe that's a good segue into talking about driver assist systems. But before we move into that, uh, let's back up a minute. You are a research scientist at MIT. Uh, you've got projects in a number of different areas. What, uh, what all is the scope of your job and what are you working on?
1: So um, I'm involved in, in a lot of different pieces of the, of the automotive safety and convenience puzzle. Um, I do a lot of thought leadership around the future of automation, automated mobility, um, electrification, electrification infrastructure. Um, I also co-lead um, the Advanced Vehicle Technologies Consortium, which is a partnership um, between about 25 different automotive stakeholders together, investing in research around how drivers are touching production level assistive and automated features in, in real road environments. It's amazing how much you can learn together at the foundations of how people are touching real-world technology that is new and innovative to the design teams. Um, you know, we have a tendency as engineers to build things using engineering specifications in silos. You turn it over to a consumer out there, and the consumer begins to use that in ways that you don't expect. Um, we're doing some really cool, interesting uh, apples to apples comparisons between the behavior of, of individuals leveraging a variety of different partial automation systems, Autopilot, Super Cruise, Pilot Assist, most recently beginning to collect data on Blue Cruise. You know, each of these systems has advantages and limitations in how humans adapt to use them. And by learning more about the advantages, And learning more about the limitations, we can enhance designs and and innovate faster. So our efforts are very much at the foundation where companies can come together to leverage data insights together and then move along in in more competitively uh, oriented directions on their own. So it's really fun when I get to sit and work with everybody from OEMs across the world to tier one suppliers, insurers, safety stakeholders and big technology companies like Google.
0: It's really interesting because, you know, thinking about the automakers behind all the systems you just mentioned, uh, they're all designed on their own and in silos. So, you know, it seems like you are bringing, bringing them together so they can learn best practices from from each other in a, I guess, a pre-competitive environment. Is that the right way to look at this? Absolutely. And then, again,
1: we want to be pre-competitive where folks are learning from data we're collecting we don't want to play in the competitive decision making. We want to inform you know, folks and get them thinking about things that quite frankly, each one of them can do by themselves. But collaboratively together, you know, we've seen with ABT about $15 million of collaborative investment. You know, no one OEM wants to go out and spend that kind of money by themselves. But buying a piece of that research pie in pre-competitive territory. I believe at this point, given the, the growth trajectory of ADT over the last eight years and how many folks are, have gotten involved and in seeing how they're using what we're doing, you know, folks involved have a significant competitive advantage over the folks who aren't involved. They're learning together. They're not just learning from MIT. They are learning together about some of what's working well, some of what's not working as effectively as possible, and quite frankly, using the data and insight to make better educated guesses quite frankly, taking a step or two forward towards the dartboard when you're doing product planning is worth a fortune. So when I, mean, I look at companies out there that I've been talking to for years, companies involved, I finally can say at this point, point, you know, 20 years in my career at MIT, the folks who are working with us have a unique competitive advantage against uh, uh, over and above the folks who aren't. Both in what they're learning from the team at MIT, perhaps just as importantly, what they're capable of learning from each other in an environment that is so different than the traditional ways that the industry has collaborated in the you know past century.
0: I think it's important to kind of underscore you've been collecting data for, for seven or eight years now. It's uh, there's a lot of regulatory bodies and, and perhaps others who are starting to look at these issues now, but uh, you have data going back uh, almost a decade at this point Um what sort of data are you collecting from, from vehicles?
1: So the data we're collecting is is starts with you know video from the forward scene, video of you know, the driver's face, thinking DMS applications, forward perception applications, as well as information on what the driver may be doing in the vehicle, thinking about a, in cabin monitoring, you know, what's in the driver's hand, et cetera. Um, and often an image of the instrument cluster and center stack that that gives us a much better understanding of what the driver may be looking at. Where at all possible, we're fusing this with telemetry from the vehicle. Um, So, you know, in in select vehicles, we have access to a vast array of telemetry to vehicles. And in some vehicles, we have access to less information. GPS data, gyroscope, accelerometer data, all time synchronized together and allowing us to paint a fairly broad picture of how people are leveraging technology. We're then annotating this with copious amounts of ana- manual annotation. We're using computer vision approaches where appropriate, um, using the data to build huge analytical data sets, um, providing insight back to the folks who are supporting us. I, you know, in multiple points through the research scope. So a lot of times we'll come back and say, "Here's what a descriptive analysis of auto lane changes look like with Tesla Autopilot." Coming back a few weeks later, talking more depth uh, about statistically modeling that. Some of it out, you know, a year, year and a half later, sometimes two years later in a publication. So when folks see publications coming out from us, that's data that the folks supporting this effort, you know, saw as we developed that, curated that, shared it along the way. And you know, by the time it's out in the public domain, it's probably two and a half year old data. What's really key here, though, is that you know, you see the regulatory body starting to collect data here, you know, NHSA and RFP in the street, you know, almost a year ago, trying to collect. Data very synergistic to what we're doing. Yeah, we've been doing this for eight years. I don't know of anybody else in the world that's doing the same type of comparisons as we are. And as we build those analytical data sets, we know there are limitations and assumptions in every statistical model you can do. So we are increasingly turning those analytical data sets over to some of the, the, the to the full members of the AVT consortium. So many of them are leveraging the data we're collecting for their own analytical purposes. And, and you're seeing an increasing array of publications coming out from our partners, leveraging the data in ways beyond what we're doing. Fortunately, we get the ability to see how they're looking at that data. And it's great to see you know, research teams across the globe leveraging naturalistic data in new ways and the ability to replicate science, enhance science, leverage copious investments in annotation you know, to really move this field together in a pre-competitive framework.
0: And it's really
1: been a fun experience to watch over the last nearly decade.
0: What have you learned? What have we collectively learned about uh, driver attentiveness and distraction uh, when drivers are using level two driver assistance features or systems?
1: So I think what we've learned very clearly, and you can can find a number of publications out there on um, the attentiveness of Tesla drivers um, under Autopilot, we have seen very clearly that level two features need to be coupled with a robust driver monitoring slash management support system. That means that deploying highly assistive features such as Autopilot without a robust monitoring system um, and support system really is an area much like we see moving in Europe that needs to be regulatorily prevented. Torque-based driver monitoring systems, um, you know, keep your hands on the wheel, give the wheel a nudge every once in a while, much like we've seen in the news, just don't work robustly enough to keep drivers engaged. I think that in many senses, the most innovative system on the market and most advanced automation system remains um, Super Cruise. I think that from a pure automation perspective, sure, Autopilot's doing more, but the system that GM created back in 2018 is really a philosophy of how do we integrate the human in a new way with that system. Um, and, And the driver support features in there are incredibly innovative, highly connected to the automation system. And I think the design team made some very early decisions in there on trying to limit the automation's capabilities, not because we had to but because it was the best way of ensuring we developed a collaborative system. So we see even GMs since then adding lane change features. You know, are they really in the best interest? I think that's an interesting gray area. You know, Blue Cruise bringing hands-free and hands-on control together, you know, mode confusion being a worry there. Is that as simple and elegant as keep-it-simple approach um, that GM had and their early Super Cruise research? So I think that, you know, there, you know, there's a bunch of publications coming out in the next couple of years. Um, A few of them that were just accepted recently, they'll begin to shed a little more light here. But I think the key here is, is that, you know, there is a lot of advantages and a lot of limitations that one can learn about by looking at the data. And it's not surprisingly that if we automate, we reduce workload and people find other things to do. Uh, In essence, why else are we adding the automation? And as I think we've talked about in the past, if we're going to automate to enhance convenience, we have to make sure that safety is not forgotten. And and the balance between convenience and safety being something that was very deeply discussed at CES this year. I think the automakers in particular have have found a new light in our need to support the driver and need to enhance safety. And the fact that We can't just automate without really taking a deeper look at at how do we balance the safety aspects of that.
0: We're gonna take a short break from my conversation with Brian for this word from our friends at Slate. When we return, we'll further discuss some of Brian's ongoing research and perhaps get a sneak preview at his findings. Hi, I'm Lizzie O'Leary, host of Slate's What Next? TBD, a clear-eyed look at technology, power, and the future. From fake news to fake meat, algorithms to augmented reality. We'll guide you through the rapid technological changes that are reshaping our world. Those changes aren't always visible, and they aren't always what they appear to be. That's where TBD comes in. With the help of expert guests, we'll help you parse out what matters, what doesn't, and what's next. Subscribe to What Next TBD in your favorite podcast app. Now back to my conversation with MIT research scientist Brian Reamer. Brian, so are you saying it? It seems like this driver assistance features are are primarily a convenience feature to reduce workload, uh, and the safety benefits to date are are unknown. Is is this is not a safety system essentially? This is a convenience system.
1: Uh, the automakers are selling them as convenience systems. But the key being here is that we need to incorporate and consider. A much deeper understanding of the safety benefits of these systems along the way. Now, what I think was discussed very elegantly at CES this year is that the convenience aspects of L2 are an attribute that is going to increase the level of sensing and computation in vehicles to enable that, that can accelerate the safety advantages we want. You know, quite frankly, no one's going to spend the money. That's required advanced advance the sensing and computational characteristics of the vehicle that are needed for safety alone. But when you can find that balance between convenience and safety, all of a sudden you have justification to invest a lot easier in both the convenience feature and the safety feature. And I think that we have to as an industry, we have a moral obligation here to take a step back and a deeper look at what that balance needs to be. So, you know, if you can bring more advanced sensing in, you say, OK, to enable the, the automated support we're looking for for a level two feature, we got to bring LIDAR in. Great. OK, what can LIDAR do to that safety equation? OK, all of a sudden now we have greater justification of why we bring a LIDAR into cars. Now, for safety alone, are we going to spend the money on the sensing requirements morally, ethically? Sure, we should. But is the reality is everybody want to spend an extra couple hundred bucks for a car? The answer is probably no. And the only way we're going to get the technology move fast enough to bring the price point down is to really get it out there faster. You know, the reality is, is the faster these technologies get deployed, the faster they get commoditized, the lower the price point becomes and the further we can move faster.
0: You mentioned before when you were talking about super Cruise, that it, that it's essentially a collaborative system and that GM has engineered something that's maybe more collaborative than everything else in the market. How do you sell then to consumers the idea that collaboration and not this either or thing is is to their convenience advantage?
1: Well, that, that's, that's an interesting question, Pete. And I think that if you remember back when Super Cruise rele- was released, the marketing side of that was a hands-free driving feature. The entire mindset needs to become, you know, if you're going to leverage and, and deploy these technologies that we have to appropriately educate folks that they remain the responsible driver. They need to maintain an an attentive approach to driving. We need to be thinking about ways to wrestle out the non-driving related distractions out of the vehicle. You know, smartphone is not our friend here. Um, Texting and driving is a bad idea. You know, so we need to be thinking about how do we use these support features to encourage much more attentive driving. We need to get out of this mindset of, you know, full self-driving, self-driving, and really begin to think about, as we've talked about before, you're either driving and you are fully responsible for driving or you're riding. And you know what the mental model there is? I'm in a taxi, I'm in a shuttle, I'm in someplace else taking a ride.
0: I think that's very different than the magic moment that everybody has been conditioned to expect.
1: Yeah, which means that The only way we're gonna get beyond that is, is, you know, public education, PAVE is a huge important player here. You know, we need to be thinking about how do we bring all the stakeholders together? But, you know, is it the auto manufacturer's responsibility to think about hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars in marketing campaigns that are needed here to reset the consumer? Or do we need some public sector investment here and public sector leadership to begin to move beyond you know this this framework that you know, Tesla has has built around self-driving and one that is a detriment to the future of safety. You know, so I'd love to see NHTSA more engaged, moving, you know, thinking about driving and riding in the same framework as they've been thinking about click it or ticket for the last several decades. Or, you know, don't text and drive. You know, you know, how do we get that type of campaign built out there that the messaging is out there constantly? Yes, the the argument would be is that hey. It's not mainstream yet, but the reality is it is increasing in prevalence at a point that we got to be thinking about proactively addressing this today, not waiting to see how do we reactively deal with it two years, three years down the road.
0: So, what would that regulatory landscape look like? Is it setting benchmarks for the performance of systems? Is it measuring safety in a a new way? What does that look like?
1: Well, I, I third, I first think we, we got to think about. You know from a regulatory perspective how the public sector can help enhance education okay that's an easy piece you know easy in quotes here because you know, obviously it takes resources but we we got to be thinking about you know moving that public messaging across the us and beyond you know in, in thinking about resetting to me driving and riding but at, at minimum getting us away from this new levels of automation framework that may be very you know, fine for engineers was Society of Automotive Engineers, designing it for engineers, but not appropriate for consumers. Um, second, when we think about safety and safety benchmarks here, I think that, you know, I have always been a fan of continual process improvement. Um, there is no magical how safe is safe enough. The question is, is what is safe enough today? It will not be safe enough tomorrow. So we need to be thinking, you know, almost in, in a framework kind of synergistic to cafe, you know, we got to move fuel economy up year by year. I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I think many folks will hate to hear this, but I don't care what technology is deployed. I don't care what you believe your AI is or what you think your sensing is. But how do you take a manufacturer and ensure that manufacturer reduces the number of fatalities year over year in their specific product lines? So, if you're selling the largest truck brand in America, the F-150 pickup truck, how do we ensure that the F-150 pickup trucks are reduced and are involved in less? fatal collisions year by year. I don't care what technology Ford uses. You know, I, you know, at the end of the day, we need to think collectively, much like fuel economy. It doesn't matter how, we just need to get from A to B. And if Ford thinks that, you know, again, using Ford as an example here, but Ford thinks that the way to do that is better investments in automatic emergency braking, pedestrian detection systems, or they think that better investments in driver monitoring of the answer, you know what, they're all good answers. And you know what? What we solved today gets us one step forward and then the problem gets a little different. You can think about what we solve next tomorrow and each each organization has a different technology portfolio they begin to deploy. But the key being is how do we move from an unprecedented level of fatalities in the US roads and global roads? How do we turn that down? And how do we do so leveraging the best technology at everybody's hands and the best insight that everybody might have. And that variable is gonna differ between Mercedes BMW and German philosophies and US philosophies. So I think we got to think much more out of the box and saying it's not about regulating do X because whatever X is today will not necessarily be right tomorrow. And it begins to set us thinking about how do we reach a goal or a short-term goal? I want to think about how do we move the industry towards a long-term continual process improvement? Now, while we can talk about fuel economy and we can think about the benefits and drawbacks, what CAFE has done, OK, we can also step back and say, you know what? Over the last 30 years, fuel economy has improved substantially. And if we really wanted to, we can incentivize right now significant enhancements in CAFE through the use of alternative fuels, hybrids, plug in electric vehicles, electric vehicles, et cetera, and begin to think about a new technology portfolio to changing you know, the sustainability equation in mobility.
0: That's very interesting to think about it as a as a parallel to cafe in in a some way. Yeah. Again, it's not
1: easy because the, the tools of enforcement are very much harder. But again, do I think it can be done? Yeah. And I think that's where we have to be thinking here because the technology, you know, is an enabler. Each organization has, you know, has benefits and drawbacks. There's patent portfolios all over the place that protect and prohibit different implementations. So what is the best step forward for any manufacturer today? is it, it, different. You know, I think efforts such as Euro NCAP are proactively pushing technology deployments, which are great. Um, we need more proactive push here in the U.S. You know, the quasi regulators in the U.S. are IHS and Consumer Reports. Um, we you know, we really don't have a lot of proactive leadership. You know, so my comments on NCAP, are, you know, the real answer for the U.S. is to adapt Euro NCAP. You know, why? Because it's a wholehearted system that we could apply here in the U.S. that would move us forward and synergize the U.S.-European market a little more, making design development and engineering a little easier. Is it perfect for the U.S.? No. Is it perfect for Europe? Nope. But the reality is synergies and accelerants are much better.
0: Brian, kind of looping back to your research, uh, can you give us a sneak preview a little bit of, of what's underway now and what's kind of the next thing we'll hear about out of MIT? So the, the next pieces you'll hear about
1: in, in the coming weeks are, are, are some publications around supercruise. And I can't really talk about details there. I, I can tell you just two pieces accepted that will be public in, in the coming weeks. But the stuff that's coming down the pipe, we're doing research in all aspects of, of how drivers are transitioning responsibility to and from the automated systems. Um, we've got some great ongoing research in, in speeding behaviors with and without automated systems, a couple of pieces already published there. Um, We're doing some work on lane changing characteristics, lots of work on the intersection between, you know, let's call it distracted driving and automation and how those, you know, do come together and diverge in different ways. Um, Some really interesting work we're doing with Toyota, beginning to expand our understanding of just, you know, driver's engagement in secondary tasks alone in vehicles. The speed at which technology is changing what we do in the vehicle can't be forgotten. You know, just a few years ago, you know, while a smartphone may have been around, it wasn't as predominantly being used in the way it is today. While infotainment screens in the vehicle have expanded, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages of that. And a lot of it comes down to how much content folks are trying to shove on there. Um, And I think we need to be very cohesive that if we keep shoving content at the driver, the driver is going to keep looking at that content. And so it comes down to really strong design. I'm thinking about minimizing the information that we're presenting at any given point in time to support drivers in in their needs to really look at the road and cohesively make decisions. You know, lots of really fun work, lots of our threads. Um, We just actually finished a a strategic planning exercise with our membership and just finalized our next, you know, biannual uh, strategic plan, really trying to take the membership's interests, synergize them together so that we as an organization are capable of supporting you know the interest and
0: key research questions of the organizations that are supporting us. As you talked about uh, distracted driving, uh, maybe think of something you mentioned earlier about humans are sort of inherently bad at monitoring systems that that work very well. Uh, so as as driver assistance systems get better, is that is there a trade off essentially in that the human drivers who are responsible for Vehicle operations are going to be less adept at at monitoring them. Is that a concern, whether we're talking level two, level three, or or beyond?
1: Look, Pete, the FAA admitted years ago that pilot skill was eroding at the expense of automation. I think even simple things such as power steering, anti-lock braking systems, and automatic transmissions, okay? These are just the basics of automation, okay? Don't kid yourself. This is automation have eroded driver skill. And I think that as we continue to automate more, we cannot assume that the driver skill remain constant. We have to assume that as we continue to automate, our capabilities to respond to threats and objects out there will likely be less than they were years back. So, you know, let, you know, automation 101. The tipping point I would, would say is really power steering and automatic transmissions. You know, what did it do? It allowed you to take your hand off of the steering wheel. You didn't need two hands tugging it. It allowed you to remove your hand from the clutch. And what do we do? We use those resources to do other things: pick up the phone, have a conversation, unfortunately, text, etc. So, you know, this automation side we see today, you know, is just the following to what we saw earlier on: is that we automated the steering, we automated shifting, and we use those resources to do other things. You know, if you put it, you know it, the, the average 18 year old today in a vehicle without power steering or an automatic transmission, the average 18 year old would have a rough time. Not to say we haven't advanced things. I think it's, these are real, you know, at the end of the day, core technologies that have made driving a whole lot more accessible, convenient, friendly, et cetera. But at the end of the day, this is automation. And we are just at the next stage of, of our continual pursuit towards, hopefully sometime in the next century, a vehicle that I can wake up and say, "Take me where I want to go," and where I go is anywhere you know, in the continental
0: United States or beyond. Brian, final question for you here, uh, and maybe it's a bit of a softball, but I'm curious uh, about your background and how you got interested in studying driver behavior in the first place.
1: Oh, it's an interesting question, Pete. So when you think about driving behavior in 1999, as part of my work at the University of Rhode Island. We began collecting eye movement behavior on drivers as they're engaging in cell phone conversations way back in the dark ages of our, our earliest insight in you know, 25 years ago into driver distraction. Um, and some of this work was paralleled and done in a very synergistic world in, in Canada at of Transport Canada and in Sweden at the same time. And what we began to see is some of the perceptual narrowing that was occurring when we began to think and, and engage more deeply in cell phone conversations while driving. Um, that moved forward in, in 20, nearly 20 years ago, when I moved to MIT in in, 2000, in the spring of 2003, um, doing some simulation work, doing work for a number of different automakers, um, doing a number of field studies around distracted driving, and, and, and then branching out about a decade ago into doing more work in active safety and automation. Um, I was asked to keynote the second driverless car summit in Detroit back when there were about 400 people in the room. And, you know, and that was a, a major impetus for me to begin thinking much more about the automation aspects. Um, I was actually asked to do that by some folks out there who really thought at the end of the day, the human factors aspects of automation were really going to be the big questions that we need to solve. And you know what? They're right. Um, and I'll leave the names out of it since the individuals lead some fairly large organizations these days. But I think that as we move forward, the keys to the future of automation, yeah, yeah. The AI and the automation technology needs to you know, continue to evolve, but the keys are how do we integrate humans with this more effectively to create automated systems that include us as part of that decision process. And I think that we will begin to do that more and more. We see many companies out there beginning to think about this. We see companies really leveraging an insight from what we see in data. Accelerating that towards some really keen market decisions. And I think that the future of automated mobility is is really bright. It is really bright around human centered automation, where I think that we are going to continue to be the driver for decades to come in the vast majority of miles traveled. I hope that, you know, even with with the folding of Argo and I think some more consolidation and highly automated mobility system i really do hope that research and deployments continue there i hope that folks get strategic in where they're spending their budgets and begin to think about smaller maybe better for a while um, because i think it's gonna be a long time before any of these robo taxi and high automated systems really pay off um, but i hope that research continues because as i said i hope sometime in the next century I can wake up one morning or my grandkids can wake up one morning and say hey you know what take me out for a coffee and I don't have to drive anymore or they don't have to drive anymore. And it's way out there, but it's lots of fun stuff out there. Um, I think electrification is going to be a key piece here. We're starting to see some of the growing pains. Electrification is, is something I see very parallel to automation right now, you know, a dream of how fast it can occur. Um, but the infrastructure, the raw materials are going to limit this. And I think we're, you know, we're making some mistakes in how we're setting consumer expectations there that are highly synergistic to the automation industry five, seven years ago. Um, so it's a real, real interesting piece that I think that we need to be reevaluating the role of internal combustion engines, plug-in hybrids, hybrid electric powertrains, and battery electric vehicles, and remembering that each of them has an important role in the future of a sustainable mobility system. Um, and right now, you know, I think oh, there's a big policy push on electrification is the answer. I want to know where I'm going to charge my electric vehicle when I don't have a garage or a public charger nearby.
0: I don't think you're the only one asking that question. Uh- but I think the synergies to
1: automation are scary and we're not talking about them enough. You know, this is long-term, decades-long transformations in how we live and move. And we need to be looking at them as what they are and looking at iterative approaches that can get us a long way down the road. You know, Toyota is highly criticized for their perspectives on plug-in electric vehicles. You know what? At the end of the day, they may not be the best long-term solution, but I will take a car right now that can get me 40, 50 miles of the gallon on a small battery that's always used every day of the week over the investments in an electrified vehicle that is rarely used um, in a duty cycle enough, the amount of lithium and other precious metals that I can't even charge when I need to. So, you know, the infrastructure needs to evolve.
0: Brian, great having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Pete. If I was to sum up this conversation, I'd say there's a lot of technology out on the road that's new and still so much to understand about how it's actually being used and how it's influencing driver behavior. That is it for today's episode. If you liked my conversation with Brian or the Shift podcast overall, please leave us a review and subscribe at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Brian for being here. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.